Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to recline the bookshelf and read the world. Today, I'm talking to Jen Campbell about her new book, The Sister Who Ate Her Brothers, which is out now from Thames and Hudson. You can find a complete transcript of our conversation over on our website, readingwomenpodcast.com, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. As many of you already know, I am a huge fan of Jen's. Uh, Autumn and I talked to her uh, a couple few years ago, actually now, what is time? And we talked to her about her short story collection, The Beginning of the World in the Middle of the Night. Now Jen is back with another book. This one is The Sister Who Ate Her Brothers, which is a retelling of fairy tales, but in this fabulous, creepy sort of way, which is perfect for spooky season. I cannot stress this enough. I loved her book and how creepy and delightful it was and full of wonderful fairy tale goodness, as only Jen Campbell can give us. We also talked about how disability and disfigurement are portrayed in the media. That is a huge area that Jen Campbell has spoken out about a lot. Uh, And I really appreciate her advocacy for disability rights. And as a disabled person myself, I just really appreciate the perspective that she brings to conversations. And uh, I, I just love chatting with her. It was definitely the bright spot of my week. And Jen is such a wonderful person to talk to. So, so definitely a good time. Uh, So a little bit about Jen before we jump into our conversation. So uh, Jen Campbell is an award-winning poet and short story writer. She also has picture books uh, in the Franklin Fine Bookshop series. I believe there are three of those. She also has a full-length poetry collection called The Girl Aquarium, which I adore. And you should definitely go check those out. She has other nonfiction books as well. And so I will link her website down in the description so you can go check out all of her books. She also has a wonderful YouTube channel, which I love. Uh, She's one of the first uh, booktubers that I ever watched. And so I always enjoy her content. And so we mentioned a couple of her videos and I will link those in the show notes as well. So for this interview, uh, We thought it would be great to start out with Jen reading the introduction of The Sister Who Ate Her Brothers. And so without further ado, here is Jen reading those first few pages of her wonderful new book. The Sister Who Ate Her Brothers is a collection of 14 gruesome tales from around the world. We've got a sister who longs to eat her family. We've got a boy who tricks a troll in the middle of the night. And we have a castle that screams into the darkness whose walls are made out of skin. You know, all the lovely, cosy, warm, fuzzy stuff. (laughs) And it is narrated by a person, me, if you like, in a forest who is trying to encourage you to get lost in the dark, so I thought I would read you the introduction. Hello, reader. I can see you hovering outside in the dark forest. Come, come inside, where it's warm, that's it. Just step over the threshold and close the door behind you. That's better, isn't it? I suppose I should introduce myself. I am here to tell you stories. I adore stories, particularly the gruesome ones. There was a time long ago when these brilliant, horrible tales were known far and wide, but then people changed them. They gave them happily ever afters where nothing really awful happened, and well, a lot of them became boring. So I want to revive those tales of old, the stories where things hide in the dark. The stories where people eat each other. The stories where there are holes in the centre of the earth with terrible things inside. I'm going to tell you some of my favourite tales. I hope you like them. I hope they please you. You look a little worried. Don't be. Oh, you say the door has locked itself behind you? Yes, it has a nasty habit of doing that. Now, come in and sit down and listen to what I have to say. I'm sure once the stories are over, you'll be able to leave again. (laughs) I said sit. That's better. Are you comfortable? I hope not. Oh, we're going to have such fun. All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Jen. 
I'm so happy to be here. It's so nice. Also, I get to see you this time. I feel like last time we did it, there was no visual, and this is just lovely. It's true. Not for the people listening, obviously, (laughs) but, you know, for us. (laughs) They can imagine, you know? Yeah. Uh, But I'm really excited to chat with you again. You are our first return guest ever, so welcome. I feel very special, thanks. (laughs) Well, last time we were talking about your short story collection, and this time Mm -hmm. we're talking about... How how do you pitch this book? What I mean, it's a children's book, right? But what genre of children's book? It's a good question, and one I should probably have an answer <laughs> to by now. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I just say I don't tend to say short story collection. I just say fairy tale retellings. But it's both. It is a short story collection of fairy tale retellings, and yes, it is for. We're recommending eight upwards, just because it is a bit scary um but definitely also for for teenagers and adults too I mean it's the kind of book that I enjoy reading anyway I mean I would I wrote it but you know what I mean it's 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 that kind of book that I think can span lots of different lots of different ages and I leave it up to parents really as to how young they would like to inflict it on their children (laughs) because I did a uh a reading of it over Zoom, not over Zoom, over FaceTime with my niece and nephew who are five and eight. Primarily I was doing it for my nephew who's eight, but obviously they're siblings. One can't have one thing and the other not have it. So my niece was very much there um, and she really liked it. In fact, I wanted to put quotes on the book for them because this is a pandemic book, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but meant there was no proof copies to send to authors. So we didn't have author quotes before it came out. And uh, my niece's quote was gross. And my nephew's quote was disgusting. And I thought they'd be great quotes to have on the outside of the book, you know? So how do I pitch it? Gross and disgusting. <laughs> gross and disgusting. Fairy tale retellings. Uh, harking back to traditional tales of old, but with a diverse set of characters, queer representation, positive representation of disability and disfigurement. There you go. <laughs> that was a very long elevator pitch, sorry. <laughs> well, I think this obviously first is perfect for this time of year. Halloween mm-hmm. is almost upon us. In fact, when this goes up, it'll be just a few days away. And yeah. I listened to, you had some readings of this. I listened to that and then I read the rest and it is delightfully creepy. Um, Thank you. I really, really loved it. And like you, you just mentioned, like fairy tales traditionally are, are pretty gruesome. So this really kind of fits the bill. Yeah, I, I um, in uh, always have to use the air quotes, normal times, uh, go into schools and talk to kids about the history of fairy tales and teach poetry, especially for years five and six, which is ages about 10, 11. So um, I think this was really why I wanted to write this book because I've been spending so much time with kids of that age talking about fairy tales. And I delight in telling children of that age or people of any age about the history of fairy tales and how gruesome they used to be. And I think that a lot of people associate gruesome fairy tales with the Grimm brothers But actually, the Grimm's were responsible for sanitizing fairy tales and making them more palatable to children. Um, They did publish gruesome fairy tales in their first collection of fairy tales, which was published in 1812, 1815. They did it in two volumes. But then over the following decades, they made them more child-friendly, whatever that means, because this book is child-friendly and it's definitely more gory than theirs. Um, But that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to market it for children, whereas previous to that, fairy tales weren't really necessarily for children they were for everyone and everyone told them and the amount of gore depended on who you happened to be talking to but you know people got baked into pies people ate each other it was uh it was a good time it actually kind of reminds me sometimes of mythology because all sorts of weird stuff happens in mythology and i just love any sort of fairy tale folk tale that kind of vein love it and I think sometimes when people think of fairy tales, I guess now they do, is more like the Disney-fied version of fairy tales where they're very much turned into happy endings and all sorts of things. Um, But also you didn't just stick with European fairy tales. You went all over the world. Uh, And I love that. This year we're doing our international theme for Reading Women, and so I felt like it was such a great fit. So how did you decide what fairy tales that you wanted 
to retell? And how many did you have to leave on the cutting room floor because they wouldn't fit in the book? Lots, lots. <laughs> and also not just because they wouldn't uh, fit because I could only, I had a limited word count. So I've included 14. Um, and maybe shall I list the countries that they're from so people know. So we've got tales from Korea, Iceland, Japan, Norway, Nigeria, an Inuit fairy tale, one from Egypt, Germany, Russia, El Salvador, South Africa, India, China, and Spain. So we don't even have one from England. I thought, okay, if, we're going to pick and choose. I'll just, I'll not put in one from where I'm from and we'll have them from, from other places. Um, there were lots of reasons that I had to leave things out. Um, there were so many that I love that I couldn't include because they had too many similar themes with another one that I wanted to include. There are only so many stories about people, as I said, being baked into pies that you could have. If it was up to me, I might have a whole book of them, but I don't think that that's showing diversity, you know? So, so I decided let's just have, I was going to say one of them, maybe there's two. There's definitely, you know, some uh, cannibalistic ones in here, but not all of them. And then it was interesting, actually, the process of collecting them, I felt it changed over time. Because I had hoped when I started researching it, because I have researched fairy tales for years anyway, and I have a huge selection of fairy tales from around the world, so many different books. And I had assumed, even though I hadn't come across them yet in my years of researching them, that in an intense researching period of looking at fairy tales, I would discover fairy tales that had great representation of disfigurement I don't know why I thought this would happen Kendra because because we struggle to find it now but I thought maybe in I will find some and I'm not saying that they didn't exist it's just that people had their agendas when they collected them and wrote them down and I'm sure that those are ones that got left behind along with a lot of the queer stories so I had hoped that I was going to find more that I didn't have to change too much to have that inclusivity. Um, I don't mind the changing of fairy tales. Every storyteller has their own agenda, but I thought it'd be really cool if I could find fairy tales that happen to have that anyway. I haven't found them yet. Um, There is a fairy tale in here about a princess who has alopecia, and I did find a few different fairy tales with princesses who had alopecia but the end of them was always that she desperately wanted her hair back and if she was good that's what happened and I was trying to find one where that didn't happen and I couldn't find it so I was like well okay fine I'm just gonna have to choose one of these and I will change it myself so I think I was mining a lot of the time trying to find that great representation and then the more it went on the deeper I got into the project I just thought you know what I'm gonna have to do this myself because it's just not here it's just not here, um, at least uh, not in the ones that, that I could find. So I included ones that kind of focused on different dynamics. I didn't want to have lots of love stories in here. Um, there is only, no, there are two happy ending love-wise stories in here. And one of those is a straight couple. And one of those is a queer couple. All the rest have not very nice relationships <laughs> in them um and that's definitely a theme that runs throughout and I didn't mind that very much and I wanted to have as you pointed out fairy tales from over the world so geographically spread out quite far which I think I did achieve so it was it was interesting to think about which ones to keep and which ones not to keep and there were many that I did want to include that I couldn't because they were so long um there are some ridiculous fairy tales out there um, like Jean-Baptiste Basile's version of Hansel and Gretel, which is called Ninello and Ninella, starts off as the Hansel and Gretel tale that we know. But then once they've escaped from the cottage in the wood, Ninella becomes a pirate and she steals a ship and she sails out to sea and her brother's eaten by a fish that has loads of treasure in its stomach and she manages to cut him free. And I'm just like, that's really cool. But I don't have the, that's a novel. I don't, don't have don't have the space so there were lots of different reasons for choosing the ones that I ended up using uh themes uh length representation and geography as well but they're all ones that I love 
I, I really love the variety and diversity, like you said, in the collection. And one of the things that you do on your booktube channel, which will be linked in the show notes of the episode, um, is you do a lot of history of fairy tales, like you said, but you also talk about disability and disfigurement as it relates to fairy tales. So I thought since we are both here and we both you know, read disability lit and talk about such things that we could have a little chat about that as well. Because now that I read more disability literature, I, I realize more and more how much people don't talk about disability specifically in stories. And we definitely need more of that. We definitely do need more of that. And that was actually researching the book. One of the things that I found quite depressing, actually, um, I suppose, in a time where disabled people have been dismissed by a lot of society like more more often than usual in the last 18 months it was depressing to constantly read old fairy tales where the bad guy in inverted commas was you know someone who had a disfigurement or a disability um and and made me more acutely aware of the the need to have better representation of disfigurement disability in fairy tales as a disabled person with disfigurements um myself and I, but I do, at the same time, objectively find the history of fairy tales interesting and how it intersects with disability. And I think we spoke about that last time when we were talking about um, Amanda Leduc's book, Disfigured, which explores those themes a lot. And I think Amanda's work is, is great. Um, and we had a chat when she was writing that book. She'd been watching my videos on the subject too. Um, there is a whole period mainly focused around uh, the Victorian times um, where science and freak shows and storytelling, primarily folklore, kind of come together in this big, I'm going to call it a circus, in this big, this circus of storytelling. And it was a time when authors and storytellers were panicking because they thought they should be incorporating science into their writing for children gone were the times of like innocence it was all about well not gone but it was it was more about how can we teach children things instead of giving them fairy stories because that's what was fashionable science was really cool so like, right how can we do this so there are amazing fairy tales where fairies would balance equations and you could count elements on fairies wings um and a lot of um, upper class uh, Victorian children would have microscopes at home so they could look at things. And the Thames was called monster soup because people had realized how disgusting it was because they looked at it under a, a microscope. And there was this mythology flying around that if germs existed and those were bad, then maybe fairies were things that also existed but were too small for us to see and that fairies could combat the germs. So it's marketing cool people invented things like, I know, market, marketing people invented things called fairy soap. And in the UK, we still have fairy washing up liquid, which is like my favourite fact. That's why we have fairy washing up liquid because it was thought that the fairies in it would clean your kitchen. <laughs> I just think that's really great. Um, and then in freak shows, which were so popular during the Victorian times, people um, like P.T. Barnum and other freak show owners would create folklore for disabled people in their shows and they would use disabled people as in inverted commas proof of evolution they would say okay well this person is part lion and part person so they're part animal they're not fully human this is proof of evolution this is their origin story uh, everyone come and come and see them and whilst i would love to be referred to as a mythical creature that would be very nice um it's also obviously quite messed up and and not cool so there is that intersection with fairy tale and disability there you know we've always created fairy tales to explain things that we don't understand and that's one of those things you know why is someone born with this condition for instance with my condition which is ectodactyly it used to be called and sometimes still is called lobster claw syndrome because people tend to be born with um, not two fingers, but uh, two sections of bone that can then be separated into more fingers. But it looks like two fingers. Um, and it was said that if someone was born with ectrodactyl or lobster claw, their mother must have eaten shellfish when she was pregnant. So you can see the kind of fairy tales that build up out of that. But... Um, I think now is the time to reclaim that and retell them uh, and put our own stamp on them, really. Yes. Yeah. It's one of those things that once you once you see it, you can't 
unsee it. It's like once you're aware of how intimately fairy tales and disfigurement and disability are connected and how it's always at the end that, you know, the beast becomes human again or whatever. It's always that they return to being more human, air quotes. Um, And it just really... You know, as a kid, I used to just love them and I would just read them. And as an adult, I'm like, oh, wow, this is, this is, this is a problem. <laughs> like, like uh, let's dissect that a bit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that is inherently tied up with religious messages of redemption, because a lot of fairy tales do have questionable morals at the end. You know, if you're good, this will happen to you. And if you're not, this will happen to you. And disability is used as a metaphor or an allegory. But we're not metaphors, we're people. So I was like nuanced storytelling. Uh, and you're right, Beauty and the Beast was inspired by a real life person called Petrus Gonzalves, who had hypertrichosis, which is where hair grows all over your body. And he was well known as a person because he was um, passed through the courts in the late 1500s um, as, as an oddity. And he was married to a woman called Lady Catherine in this kind of like weird joke because they thought it was a, it was someone that the royals didn't like, Lady Catherine. So they thought, oh, well, we'll marry you off to Petrus Gonzalves and we won't let you meet him beforehand. But the, by all accounts, they ended up loving each other very much. And then they had seven children together. And about 100 or so years after that, Beauty and the Beast, the first novel, was written. And there are lots of animal bride, bridegroom stories. Um, and... So it is based on that, but it is thought that Petrus Gonzalez was also like a big, a, a, a big inspiration for that story. But as you say, at the end, the Beast, or in the Disney version, he's called Adam. I love they never called him Adam in the film. And then I think when they brought out merch, they were like, oh my God, what do we, what's his name? <laughs> we didn't give him a name. Or we have to call him Adam. Adam, that was definitely his name. Definitely. We definitely said that in the film. They just never did. Uh, it always confused me because I had a doll um, at Disney. Oh, maybe my sister did and I used to steal it. But it was a doll of Adam and then you could turn him into the beast. Um, you could put a mask on him and he would become the beast again. Yeah. I think it's, you know, as you say, we enjoy these things when we don't critically think about them sometimes. So there are more obvious instances like Scar and the Lion King, which I think I always realized was a bit like not okay. Um, but I think it's really good that we're having these conversations more and more. I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. And my mom actually read um, Amanda Ludick's book after, I think it was last year she and I had a conversation. I don't remember because we were, we were always a big Disney family loved you know my mom read mythology to me as a child like it was always something that was part of my childhood and I said you know mom I I still love Disney and but we need to have a conversation about this and and talk to kids about this because you know the idea that beauty equals beauty stereotypical beauty etc equals goodness and if you are disfigured in any way that must mean you've done something bad that is an incredibly harmful concept you know not just because people with disfigurements and or look different in any way are you know always become the villains but also in a very real sense now those of us with invisible disabilities don't get health care because we're not considered actually disabled because oh you're too pretty to be disabled and i'm like where is the logic in that statement and it's taken you know a long time you know before doctors actually believe me it's usually like a, they want to do all their own tests and whatever so the whole system is then really screwed up and in america we're already struggling you know like we need all the help that we could get for that and so she and i were able to have this great conversation and I come from a family of disabled people, but there's never been any sort of critical thinking on disability studies. It's just been, oh, this is just the way we all live. And I'm like, well, how about how about let's talk about this? Because, you know, my niece and nephew already show signs of like problems with food and certain things. So um, it's definitely a conversation starter, um, particularly when these stories are always in our house, you know. Yeah, absolutely. They, I mean, fairy tales in particular are so much an embedded part of our culture. And I think that's why we don't question them as much because they've always been there. 
And um, as adults, we then have all this nostalgia tied up in it. And I think we're less quick to unpick things that we think favorably of through the lens of nostalgia. Um, And I think we can excuse things we wouldn't in other forms oh because it's it's just a story and it's just a fairy tale um and I know that you must feel this too that it is kind of exhausting to kind of always discuss things from that starting point with people of breaking down that no it's not just a story because it does impact people's perception media is so so much a part of how we perceive the world and not just talking about fairy tales here but books films everything and the disfigurement villainy trope in particular and also disabilities inspiration porn these two things are so prevalent um that they are things that we that we have to talk about and the question is no longer is this an issue because it's been proven so many times by people in the field that's not a question that's going on at the heart of the matter anymore we've got charities like changing faces uk and face equality who work with the bfi which is the british film institute and the bfi now no longer will fund films that have um villains with disfigurements because they acknowledge the research that's been done into how it affects how people perceive people with disabilities and therefore how people who are disabled are treated in real life that isn't the conversation the conversation is not does it matter And it's frustrating that that's always where we have to start is proving that it matters when it's already been proven. And as you say, it's because our voices aren't listened to. We're often not believed. Um, And you said before, I thought it was really interesting. um, I'm paraphrasing you, sorry, but you were saying you didn't know the origin of where this comes from of the I don't see you as disabled um, line. And um, I get that too when people say, I wasn't looking at your hands. For anyone listening, I have ectrodactyly, which is missing hands. Um, missing hands? I don't have missing hands. I have missing fingers. <laughs> oh, get that one right. That's not what I have. Missing fingers. Um, I wasn't, uh, I didn't notice your hands because I was listening to all the lovely things you're saying or, or stuff like that. Because disability is always seen as separate to self. Like it's not part of you. It's something you must want to disassociate from. But as disabled people, that's not something that we can do or even particularly want want to do we are whole beings it is not something that has been put on us because we've done something bad it's not something that's an extension of our being it is us um you know there's that whole line of you know don't be defined by xyz and one of those things can be disability it's like okay but it's not something to be ashamed of and we need to talk about how these labels are important to us and how disability impacts our life and how society interacts with that. Otherwise, we never move forward and things get buried. We don't talk about them and nothing gets solved. So I think we both say that we are proudly disabled people and that it is part of our identity and that that is okay. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't break things by saying that. Well, I feel like maybe we did, maybe we broke a fourth wall. Like we're breaking out <laughs> of a story of ourselves and being like, excuse me, this is real life. Like we are disabled, that's fine. And uh, we don't need to transform magically into something else to have our happily ever after. We just like better healthcare, thanks. <laughs> y- yes, yes, cosign all the way better healthcare. Uh, as I'm always waiting for one medication or another to be reapproved by my insurance. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I get really frustrated with people um, when they talk about disability, because sometimes they'll say, oh, disabled people, they can do everything we can do. Just They just do it differently. And I'm like, no, actually, I can't do everything you can do. And that's still okay. Like, it doesn't matter if I can't work as long or do whatever. I'm, I'm still a valuable human being. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if you, like, believe that this model of, like, production equals worth situation, which... We won't go into today, but just insert rant here. (laughs) Capitalism. (laughs) But also, I used to be that person. I used to be that person because I think as disabled people, we all go through our, I hate the word journey, we all go through our journey with ableism, right? Internalized ableism. And I used to think that I couldn't say that I was disabled because that would not make me less. But I'd always been told, because you say you come from a family of disabled people, I don't, and I am the only disabled person in my family. And um, 
my parents from a place of love I have to say I'm not here to bash my parents um always used to tell me I'm not disabled and you're not you're not like them and they thought that was a nice thing (laughs) to, to, to say to me you know and it was always that I had to prove that I could do things just as well as everybody else um and as you said or I just did them differently um because that's what you're rewarded for um and it's a it's a really difficult thing to to break down and I'm still challenging myself on that all the time because as you said we're in a in a capitalist society that rewards productivity and there are good things about that and also really not great things about that yeah working on it working on it I I, you know I have I'm a one on the Enneagram so I'm always doing 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 and I'm very hard Mm -hmm. on myself the most in that perfectionist way and I've always felt like I had to go above and beyond that has really hurt me as an adult later because I've lost a lot of ground because I didn't take care of my body during college and afterwards you know I there wasn't the idea of um taking care of your body for the future it was always work 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 until you drop. Mm. And that's not a very healthy outlook, Um, particularly if you are already disabled and you have fewer spoons than most people. Oh, definitely. I mean, I used to, I feel I'm getting deja vu. I can't remember if I said this last time, which maybe we've just, just just when we've chatted in general, I don't know. But um, I used to, at university, write my um, exams, like, I mean, like most people, I guess, do. Uh, but it used to, I used to be in tears in that exam because I, I can't write for long periods of time. I've had dozens and dozens of operations to craft hands and I can write a little bit, but you know that intense writing in exams, like, oh my God, I must get everything down. I just used to bore my eyes out during the exam. Uh, and then my partner said to me, and it was in fourth year of university, so because in um, Scotland you do four years of university instead of three, he said, like, why don't you request a computer? Because you can do that. And I was like, no, it's definitely a failure. Like, I can't do that. So anyway, I ended up going to the disability um, studies unit and asking, I was you know, really apologetically, can I use a computer? And they were like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, this was here all along, and it, the only person stopping me using it was me. I mean, not only me, clearly it was the world at large who had made me feel these things about myself and that was why I didn't go. But yeah, we can be our own worst enemy sometimes as well. Like just be like, it's okay, you can do that thing. You can ask for the assistance, that is fine. <laughs> it's okay. You mentioned that it was, you know, fairly fairly recently, we'll say in the last few years, that you came to view yourself as disabled. And I feel like I've definitely been on a similar trajectory where I felt like because I was productive, I couldn't call myself really disabled, air quotes, because like I wasn't disabled enough. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that and how that's changed your perspective on your work? Yeah, I think it's the reason I didn't use the word disabled, which I think I touched on before, is because I always said I had a disfigurement. That was something I was very comfortable saying. Um, like, I have scars, I have missing fingers, I have a disfigurement. That made the most sense to me, and that's also true as well as being disabled. Um, and I also thought, because uh, I could do that, I can do all the things that you do, <laughs> kind of thing, that, that it wasn't a necessary label to use. Kind of thought that if I took it, someone else couldn't use the word, which is not how words work. <laughs> but that was just something that I thought. And then it was, it was, a, it was a lot of different things. I think I'm, oh, there are so many topics that we could talk about. But, but briefly, like my partner and I are currently going through IVF and I think it's when when you start maybe you just hit a certain age but also you start thinking about children you think about your childhood and your identity and all of that stuff um so that was something that made me reflect on it more plus uh the disability that I have is a degenerative one so I have many more things in air quotes wrong with me I hate the word wrong I have interesting things that I am dealing with on a day-to-day basis there we go that's better um which meant that I felt more comfortable using that word I think it was more about can I be really cheesy I think it was about liking myself I, I think I was keeping that part of myself very separate and not liking it and that's sad and I think it was a process of actually liking myself I went to therapy, Kendra, can you tell? <laughs> I went to, I did some therapy. Um, 
because of uh, medical stuff that I was was going through, um, I am losing my eyesight and it was recommended, you know, we have someone in the rare diseases clinic that I go to, would you like to talk to them? And at first I was like, I don't have time for that. I am fine. And then obviously I went to see her and I was just like... <laughs> let's just talk about things um so that was a really lovely process of kind of uh accept oh god it sounds so cheesy I'm so sorry accepting that part of myself and learning to engage with I think my childhood self and what I needed as as a kid in in literature in stories as well as just you know day-to-day life that people need that representation we need to have these open conversations and that was also prompted by other work that I do I go into schools as I said to talk to kids about fairy tales but I also talk about disability and disfigurement I do grassworks grassroots work with disabled writers and speak with publishers about the representation of disability in publishing and all of those things cumulatively it gave me the confidence to really uh, talk more openly about being a disabled person and also include that in part of my work. And I hadn't written about disability um, when I first started writing. I have 10 books published now. My first one was published in 2012. Um, and I have worked in the publishing industry for 15 years. And I know how ableist it can be as I'm not just saying publishing is like that. Everything is like that. But, you know, I've been in editorial meetings where editors have talked about the palatability of disability and how disabled stories always have to have a moral, which I think feeds into what we were saying about fairy tales. It has to teach children something. And by teach children something, they mean teach non-disabled children about disability. Whereas my thought is that, yes, there are sometimes especially for kids' books, instances where teaching children about things is really important, but also we need incidental representation and own voices work where the story is not about being disabled, but it is about disabled people and adventures that they go on or things that they do. So um, I think I've just just been thinking a lot about representation and wanting to incorporate that more in my work. And I've definitely done that in the last five years. But before that, I didn't because I thought it wouldn't get published, um, which I think has some truth to it as well. Uh, and now that I have a lot of books behind me, I feel more confident in delivering proposals of stories to publishers with disabled protagonists because I have a track record that they can, I guess, respect, even if they don't particularly understand why I've written, for instance, a picture book that has a disabled protagonist and the story has nothing to do with why he's disabled. Um, yeah, it's taken a while. That was a very long answer. You're so welcome. <laughs> no, I, I, think it's, I think it's really important that folks hear these stories because disability is a unique group where you become, you can become disabled at any time. Mm-hmm. And so when, even when you grew up with something like this, you still struggle with that internalized ableism. So when someone becomes disabled, they often bring their own ableism with them oh, yeah. into like uh, therapy groups or their activism or whatever they do. And a friend even told me that in her disability like um, group therapy group, they separate people who've been disabled since they were a small child or mm-hmm. were born with it versus those who became, you know, disabled after adolescence. And I was like, that's a great idea. So I think it's important for people to understand that when one disabled person says something, that doesn't mean that that automatically, like, goes forth, right? I was talking with someone recently who recently learn that they are disabled and they kept talking about the medical model disability versus the social model disability. And you could tell like they thought they had figured it out. And I'm just like, okay, well, we'll talk again in three years and we'll see what you think after you try to get healthcare. And maybe you'll realize like the social model disability actually is quite um, important to think about and discuss. We'll just say that. And so I really appreciated now that I've go out and try to find books by other disabled people that you get all of these different perspectives because we also have such a wide range of conditions, right? So one person's experience, even with the same condition, it's going to be different, let alone entire other thing. Absolutely. And also I feel like that's something that has 
helps me speak about and include uh, disability more in my writing is consuming work by other disabled people um, and talking with other disabled people, which I never did. I, I, I never had met anyone who had... Uh, I've met one person now who has my, my own condition, but I'd never uh, encountered other kids who were going through similar things like having a life that was half in and half out of hospital I was always the odd one out but disabled people are the biggest minority group and the most underrepresented minority group in publishing specifically but in you know in other areas too and it's so empowering to hear other people talk about their experiences and um, I think that there's a lot of stuff that we compartmentalize as disabled people because like I was saying about editors, it's not palatable to, to the wider world. I used to have a dual life. I would never talk about my operations or hospital stuff with my friends at school, even though I wasn't at school a lot of the time because I was in hospital and it was just an understood thing that we never talked about it. And it would always be hushed by teachers if any kids wanted to ask me because they thought it was embarrassing and I wouldn't want to talk about it. Um, so I do think, as you said, it's so important to listen to other people talk about their experiences so that you can see the crossover in your own experiences, but also the difference too. And anyone listening who hasn't read um, Sitting Pretty by Rebecca Tausig, I would so recommend reading it it's such a great introduction I think specifically to social models of disability that you were just talking about Kendra um and how that's really where we need to focus a lot of our attention uh to representation and accessibility and healthcare. Uh, the things that if we're going to use disable in a, in a different way the, the things that disable disabled people the things that make life difficult I think you know there are there was a really horrible experiment um that sounds much more dramatic than it is but it just wasn't very nice it was social experiment um where irish celebrities were being wheelchair users for a day a couple of weeks ago and it was it was horrendous and the main person who'd done it uploaded an instagram video afterwards saying how horrific the experience had been and how she didn't know how disabled people weren't depressed all the time and you know she couldn't wait to get out of her chair there are lots of things to talk about there. I think, you know, it is very difficult. It can be very difficult when you first start using a wheelchair because it, it's new, like anything new, you have to get to grips with it. But the thing that is really difficult if you're using a wheelchair um, is accessibility of places and other people's attitudes. Wheelchairs are freeing things for so many people they are a means of accessing places they're a way of um getting around and that is so delightful and joyful but all she could talk about was how horrendous it was because she had the choice to get out of the wheelchair at the end of the day um and uh that is focusing on the medical model of medical model of disability and um she felt she was limited because of her body when in fact the thing that was limiting is how unaccessible places are to wheelchair users and that's the narrative that we need to focus on more i think yeah because i in all honesty i can't do a lot of things anymore but the thing that hurts my mental health the most is trying to interact with people <laughs> who are like I know you're disabled but can you just like quickly read this and I'm like I I can't read text most of the time so like you know even if I could you're asking me basically to have a broken foot and walk around without crutches like that's not healthy that's not healthy for like anything and so I I feel like books like Sitting Pretty have really helped me in understanding that like it's not just in my head like this is a, this is a real thing that people will deny is happening but it actually is there and that's been incredibly helpful to process a lot of things particularly during the pandemic is all of these wonderful books by other disabled people are just they're just so helpful so helpful so helpful and I, it's really I am having to battle also a feeling in myself when we're talking about this because my brain some of my brain is going some non-disabled people are going to listen to this and think that we are whining I'm like that's the kind of thing that you have to deal with as well that internalized ableism is still there we're just speaking truths <laughs> we should be okay with um 
with uh, with speaking the truth. And there is a great collection of, uh, well, two collections of essays, Disability Visibility and also Growing Up Disabled in Australia. And I think it was an essay, Growing Up Disabled in Australia, where one of the writers said they felt conflicted because they knew that focusing on the social model was important, but also their pain, like physical pain, was very real. And I'm like, yeah, okay, we need to dance between the two of these things. Um, Focusing on the social model doesn't mean we're not in pain anymore, but it does mean that we can access things that could maybe help with the pain, there'd be greater understanding of the pain, and it would be less emotionally exhausting. Well, I know we could keep on talking forever, but, you know, life awaits. Uh, So I'll just have a couple closer questions for you um, before I let you go. Um, So you have written so many different books, and I think I've read all but two of them. So you've done nonfiction and picture books and uh, short story collection. You've written poetry, written all of the things. So For you, what is your dream project at this point? Is there something that you would still love to complete and put out into the world that you haven't yet? Yes. Um, And it's hard to separate what I want and what publishing world would would want. Because I think the goal for a lot of publishers is always write the novel. And that's not one that I've done yet. I've tried I have, let me just hold my hands up and say that (laughs) I have tried Uh, and that still might happen. Um, (laughs) Middle grade novel, maybe. Um, Also, I am working on a nonfiction book about fairy tales and disfigurement and it's part memoir. Um, And I think that's a book that's going to take a long time not necessarily because the writing process is a long time but I feel as though uh, mm, oh, I'm just gonna sound like a complete twat but I think that I'm in a bit of a transitional period in my life and I feel like I can't complete the book without including especially if it's part memoir the next couple of years and, and my thoughts I feel like about certain topics are still evolving and I don't think you can ever reach a specific conclusion with a non-fiction book that is partly uh, based on your life experiences because hopefully you're still living you know but um, I feel like it needs to breathe a bit longer it needs to exist and and grow along with me for a couple of years so that is a project that is ongoing in the background all the time Um, I have written a new picture book and I am working on a new collection of short stories. So basically, I still want to do all the things. Uh, and it still makes my agent cry. But he's just going to have to deal with it because I have a very short attention span. <laughs> well, I I am very excited. I think the particularly the memoir fairy tales thing, I think will be just just brilliant. But yeah, I mean, so that stuff really has to sit and like, I don't know, germinate. I keep Marinate. thinking like the Great mm-hmm. British Bake Off where they put the thing in the proving drawer and they have to mm-hmm. wait the perfect amount of time. Too early or too late, it'll be bad. Be just right. Yeah, I think I think that that is true. Um, and I would also like to do more fairy tale related stuff, like the sister who ate her brothers. And I am in discussions about that at the moment about other types of collected fairy tales that that I could do. I have a specific one in mind that I hope to do in the next year or so, but I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it yet. I'm being that person. Sorry, (laughs) can't talk about it. (laughs) Have you ever thought of doing like a cookbook? Because I know you bake a lot. Um, No, people say that to me. In fact, a publishing company reached out to me last year and was like, hey, Jen, should we do a cookbook? I'm like, no. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not very good at making up recipes, at least not yet. I definitely just use other people's recipes. So it would be a lot of plagiarism going on, I think, if I just did a cookbook. Uh, So that's not something that's on uh, my agenda right now. Never say never. I mean, I may get better at inventing things myself, but at the moment it's a fun hobby that I like doing. And, you know, as I'm sure you, you know, I think it is important to have things that are hobbies too. And the cooking can be the hobby. And sometimes it intersects with my job because part of my job is making YouTube videos and sometimes I do baking videos for that. But I, I don't at this point in time want it to be something that feeds into writing of books. I would like it to exist as a nice thing that I can do when I need to de-stress. 
Um, so the last uh, question I have for you is what books would you recommend to our listeners? And they can be books about disability, fairy tales, both, or really anything you read that you think they might enjoy reading as well. Well, Disfigured by Amanda Leduc, as we mentioned before, and Sitting Pretty by Rebecca Tausig. But if I wanted to recommend some spooky books, um, given that we're talking about, well, touching on spooky things um i recently read mrs march by virginia Fito, which i really enjoyed um that has already been made in what well, is being made into a film right now starring elizabeth moss so if you're someone who wants to you know get ahead of the game and read the book before it becomes a film then i would recommend reading that it's about a woman whose husband is an author and she goes to the bakery one day and the person behind the till says what do you think about your husband's new book and how he's based his main character on you and she's appalled because she's heard that the main character is horrible and dresses badly and sleeps around and she hasn't read this new book and she's just absolutely flabbergasted that maybe everyone in the town is talking about her behind her back so she rushes home but she can't ask her husband outright about this so she tries to find subtle ways to investigate what he's doing it kind of reminded me a little bit of Atesha Moshveg um, especially Death in Her Hands because she's a very unreliable narrator and then it also reminded me of The Wife by Meg Wallitzer um, I was going to say something but that would be a spoiler for the for The Wife so I won't but that kind of behind the scenes literary career things but but taking it to an extreme that's not particularly realistic but is very fun so I love that and I think it's very unsettling rather than creepy probably though I think it does have a creepy element in it too anyway I just really loved it so I'd recommend that I also recently read The Talented Mr Ripley by Patricia Highsmith which I'd never read before and had such fun reading that in fact both of those books are set in the 1950s I I loved it and again there is a new version of The Talented Mr Ripley which is being made at the moment with Andrew Scott Uh, I assume that he is playing Mr Ripley but he could be playing Richard I'm not sure but that is about a man who is a sociopath who wants to really get involved in someone else's life uh in an uncomfortable kind of way and I love reading Patricia Highsmith's books because um for the most part the ones that I've read are are either overtly queer or have queer undertones too and you don't often see that in books from the 1950s so I appreciate that well all of those sound fabulous and I'll make sure to link them below but thank you so much for coming on the podcast Jen I really love chatting with you as always it's delightful Thank you. It was lovely to be here. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Many thanks to Jen Campbell for coming on the show and talking with me about her new book, The Sister Who Ate Her Brothers, which is out now from Thames and Hudson. You can find Jen on her website, jencampbell.co.uk and on social media at Jen V. Campbell, both of which will be linked in our show notes. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. This episode was produced and edited by me, Kendra Winchester. Our music is by Mickey Saito with Isaac Green. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Woman. And thank you so much for listening. Listening.